0: Well, good morning. Um, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jonathan Garrett. I'm the pastor of Young Adults and Outreach here at Westminster. And uh, if you're unfamiliar, Mike Honeycutt, our pastor, is on a sabbatical. He's on a little break and just uh, refreshing his soul and his spirit. I'm sure he's just doing wonderfully as he tries to catch tarpon in Puerto Rico, hard life. Um, but seriously, we're We're so glad that he's getting a rest. We're so glad and, and so um, you got me. Sorry, that's what you have today. Um, honestly, so excited to continue on our series in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Um, the Apostle Paul is actually making a big turn in chapter 10. He goes from exhorting the, the majority of the Corinthians who have repented Uh, from the last time he had to rebuke them. And then he encouraged them to give some money to the poor church in um, Jerusalem and around Israel. And now he is turning his attention to a minority group who has embraced some false teachers, what they call super apostles. And these false teachers are attacking Paul every chance they get. And they're undercutting him and the gospel. And so we're gonna learn from that. Hopefully the Lord will, will teach us something good As we look at these first six verses in chapter 10, would you read the word of God with me? I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word. It is eternally true, it is good, and we need it, Lord, to shape and change us. So would you challenge us, convict us, encourage us, build us up? We pray that you would, in Christ's name, amen. Um, my wife Jess and I are on a little journey, we call it the journey of gentleness. Uh, both of us, if you know us at all, um, we can be, uh, hmm, how do you put it, a uh, bold. Uh, And maybe in your face a little, overly opinionated, confrontational, however you want to say it. Um, And so if if we're going through that now, uh, seven years into our marriage, uh, imagine what that first few months of marriage was like for the two of us. We had a quibble or two. Um, There was a time when we we realized we didn't see eye to eye and we uh, may or may not have butted heads. Some of the youth can tell you in those early days when we were here, it got testy. Um, I remember one of the arguments that my wife and I had when uh, we were first married. Um, we had a pretty good one. We had argued, got kind of mean with one another. And the next day I was talking to my twin brother inventing venting about it and explaining to him what had happened. And after saying, you know, this is what she said and how she said it, he stopped me and said, John, John, whoa, slow down. What, what were y'all arguing about in the first place? Like, and that was a good question. It took me a second, I had to like backtrack, and then I got to it and I went, you know, I was loading the dishwasher, and she told me that I have to put all the utensils in each of the little individual like slots, and that's ridiculous, because it's steam. I mean, come on, the things are getting clean, and, and, and then we just blew up, and my brother started laughing, and he said, seriously, man? I said, why are you laughing? he goes, brother, that is not a hill worth dying on. And y'all know what he means, right? Like when you say that phrase, "Not a hill worth dying on." It's not a fight you want to fight. Marriage can be tough, and there's gonna be times when you have to work some stuff out. But that ain't it. Don't fight over that. And and, and I do this all the time. Working with teenagers for so long, I would talk to them and I say, "Are you really gonna fight with your mom over this? You're mad at her. You're saying she's like oppressive because she made you come home before 2 a.m. She loves you." Like, this isn't a terrible thing she's doing. Um, don't, don't pick this battle with her. Or, or mom and dad, uh, I get it. His hair is a little on the ears, it, or maybe a lot on the ears. But seriously, he's actually way worse than that. You should get to know him. You need to fight other fights, right? <laughs> like, that ain't the one. Um, and so, so, you know, there's, there's always these moments where we're able to pick little battles that don't really matter. And if we can be that way with our friends and our teachers and our spouses and our parents and our kids... Imagine how much we can be that way with just other people in the church when we don't see eye to eye with them. Uh, Our brothers and sisters in Christ, when when things don't uh, meet up in the way we think and the way they think. Um, And it's been kind of disheartening, honestly. As I I look around, I see the world kind of just at each other's throats, whether it's on social media or in the news or whatever it is. And and I look, and I'm sad sometimes because I look at the church and I'm like, are we that different? Are we that different? Are, are we acting all that different? And maybe inside of this church, I would say definitely inside of this church, are we that different? And so maybe a good question is, are these hills we're dying on that we're fighting? And how do we know? Well, I think that's what we're going to look at today. Paul is actually picking a fight, and he thinks it's one worth, worth fighting. And so we'll learn from him, what battles do we fight and how do we fight them? What battles do we fight and how do we fight them? First of all, this is definitely uh, Paul getting ready to, uh, to butt heads a little bit with a few people in the church in Corinth. Um, as a matter of fact, his tone change is pretty dramatic. If you go from chapter nine where he's kind of encouraging them and applauding them in some ways and, in, and saying, just give, because God's given so generously to you, and then he turns around and now he launches into kind of running back the critique that the others are making of him. He's kind of throwing it back in their faces saying, like you say, oh, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away? He's quoting them back at him, And what they're doing in the fight that's kind of happening, the, the problem that's happening here is that these opponents of Paul are saying Paul is insignificant. Paul is not bold. He doesn't have lofty, uh, witty, rhetorical devices that he uses. He's kind of plain. He's kind of simple. He's low. He's humble right? And and as a matter of fact, he doesn't even, you'll see this later, he doesn't even charge when he comes to town. So he must not have anything worth anything to say. Um, We charge a lot of money because we've got these great points that we're making. And so as as they go back and forth, Paul's now kind of launching into an argument with them. And it would be easy to make the mistake to think that Paul's just defending his own honor. Or Paul's just got a chip on his shoulder because they're attacking his character. But that's not the case at all. Because Paul knows he's a frontier missionary and that he is bringing the true gospel to the people in that city. The real message of Jesus Christ. He's bringing it, right? And so when these guys come, based on the way they behave and what they're saying, they're showing again and again that they don't get it. They don't get the real gospel. They're preaching something other than the gospel. And they're leading Corinthians astray. And Paul's not going to have it. That's where he puts his foot down. And he says, I've got to combat you. As a matter of fact, he says, I hope I don't have to be as bold with all of you in that minority as I'm going to be with some of you when I show up. He's going to combat anytime time the truth of the gospel is undercut. We see that in Galatia, right? There were some Judaizers, some people saying, Jesus is good, but you've got to get circumcised and you have to obey the Jewish food laws. And Paul says, no. He absolutely cuts it in half. He says, no, you cannot do that. You don't add to the gospel. He will fight when the truth of the gospel is at stake. But there's some other times the Apostle Paul kind of gets in the game and gets excited. Another instance is when there's something obstructing people from getting the true gospel. Um, We see that when Peter um, treats the Gentiles in Antioch, one way when there are Jews around and a different way when there are not. He was, he was kind to them and eating with them and then some prominent Jews show up. We know that from Galatians 2. And, and what Peter does is he starts acting all shady towards them. He doesn't want to talk to the, the Gentiles anymore. He's hanging out with his Jewish brothers over here. And, and Paul gets in Peter's face and says, you can't do that, brother. You're treating them like second-class citizens. We don't do that. We're all on level playing field before the cross. And, and he cuts it down. We see Paul getting excited and, and fired up about injustice. As a matter of fact, he sees the poor in the church in, in Jerusalem, the, the poor brothers and sisters there, and he sees all the wealth in Greece, and he says, we've got to help them out. Come on. Um, he looks at Philemon in the letter of Philemon and, and says, release the slave Onesimus. Set him free because you've been set free. And, and you can see it again and again, whether it's injustice That would would hurt God's heart, so it hurts Paul's heart, whether it's the gospel truth under attack or people putting an obstacle up to the gospel truth going forward, Paul will get in the game. Those are fights that matter to Paul. And those are the type of fights that should matter to us, right? Those are fights worth picking. Now, if that's the case, I want to ask us to slow down for a second and, and what are the fights you're picking? What what's the things that you grumble about with your friends or that you're frustrated about because you don't like it? Or or what's the, the things that bother you deeply? What have you lit somebody up on social media about lately? Don't act like y'all don't do that. You're not above it. We see. It's on social media. And so, seriously, what are the fights we're picking? Are they these kind of fights? Or are they maybe a little different? The old uh, kind of silly example that sadly happens all the time is, is the church willing to split? Are they willing to fight over the color of the carpet? Can we all agree? Any color is better than this. I mean, right, right? If you, honestly, if you love this color, I'm sorry. Sort of. Um, not, sorry, not sorry. Um, no. But uh, seriously, that's the, that's the silly example, but it happens to believers. It happens Um, Maybe uh, let's just go to a couple places that might be a little difficult. Why not? It's Sunday. Um, We're going to reopen in a month. We're going to reopen. We're going to start changing things up. We're going to try to figure out how to weave out of a pandemic. And for all the leaders on the church, this is the first pandemic we've ever done. And so we're trying to figure it out. And even in announcing it, we've heard opinions that, you know, and people voicing opinions that range all the way from why did you shut the doors in the first place all the way over to you might as well line us up and kill us and and everything in between, right? there's just so many opinions about this thing, and we're trying to figure it out. Are we going to fight about it? I'm fine with you having an opinion, and I'm fine with you voicing it, but are we going to fight? Is it going to break our unity? Um, Let's talk about politics, since we're already doing fun things. Um, Will, looking at someone of a different political party, can you look across the table at a believer who thinks something differently than you politically and say, brother and sister, can you? I have uh, cousins that I respect, two brothers, two years apart. They could not be any more different politically. I just, they can't. One is just a blue-blooded Democrat, and the other one is just as Republican as they come. He worked for a Republican congressman, and they see eye to eye on nothing when it comes to politics. And every Christmas, and every family reunion, they sit at the table together. They talk, they catch up, They look each other in the eyes with respect and dignity, and they love one another, and they share a meal. You know why? Because the fact that they're brothers matters a heck of a lot more than the political party that they support. The family is more important than politics, and brothers and sisters in Christ, we're family. Can we look across party aisles and see someone that's welcome at our table? And see someone that can sit next to us in church on Sunday morning. And if you can't, let me suggest that maybe there's something wrong with you and not with them. Like that can't divide us. It shouldn't divide us. What's a good fight to fight? What's something that maybe is is worth fighting that we've seen? I'll tell you this. Um... Recently, something awesome happened in our church. You may or may not even know about it, Um, but Courtney Denton, uh, Kristen Easler, several other people in our church, they saw a need that there was no women's shelter for women who didn't have a home in our church, and as a result, they got to work rallying together different organizations and different people, and within a matter of like a month, had raised enough money in collaboration with a ministry that was already open to open a women's shelter downtown in our church before it got really cold, and as a result of women banding together and and some other partners in ministry banding together resources, time, energy, and effort, they fought a good fight. They saw something wrong that was worth fighting over, and they gathered together. There's a shelter now that women are staying at. They have a safe place with a meal, and they're hearing about Jesus, and and they're getting help applying for jobs and getting back on their feet, and they're being blessed. And not only that, if you talk to anybody that volunteers there, they'll tell you first thing, they're the ones getting blessed by those women who redefined determination for them and love and fierceness as they try to battle through life. And so it's an amazing thing that's going on in this women's shelter in our church. That's a fight worth fighting. And they're fighting together, not with each other. And that's my prayer is that we'll find more things like that to get excited about together than aiming our cannons at each other about the things we don't see eye to eye on. That is what battles we should fight. Are they gospel-centered? Is there something obstructing folks from hearing the gospel? Is there, is there injustice going on that would break God's heart? Those are things we can get excited about. Now, how do we fight when the gospel is at stake? How do we fight the right fights? Because it's just as important to fight the right way as it is to fight at all. Because Paul spends a lot of time here talking about how he fights, right? And first we see that the gospel has to be the content of your, of your debate, of your argument. We see that in verses three and four. Paul says, these people accuse us of walking in the flesh. In other words, they accuse us of being mere men without any spiritual power. And he says, but we, he said, yes, we are men, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, this is what he's saying. Everywhere Paul went, there were beliefs, customs, traditions. There were lofty opinions, that's what he calls it, um, ideals that were preventing people from embracing the gospel. And Paul had to go into those strongholds and he wanted to tear them down so that people could embrace the gospel. And these super apostles, these other teachers, had a way of doing it, And Paul is saying they do it like man does it. They're trying to outwit them and outmaneuver them in their rhetorical arguments. Um, They're trying to get in their face and be bold and that's how they're going to change them. Paul says that's not how we do it. So how does Paul do it? How does Paul and his company change people? He presents to them a crucified and risen Savior and he lets the Spirit go to work. He lets the Spirit go to work. He goes to them, and he says he takes every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Now, what does that mean? I think a good example of that is when Paul goes to Athens. Paul goes to this place, this prominent place in Greece, and and they are excited that a religious leader has come, and so they're showing him around, and he walks around and then addresses them. And when he addresses them, he he sees that they have all these gods that they worship, right? Right? He doesn't get in their face and say, hey, you moron polytheist. Like, that, that's not going to change somebody, right? What he says instead is, hey, I see you're very religious. As a matter of fact, I see you worship this unknown God. You have a, a, a shrine to an unknown God. And you know what he does? He says, I've got good news. I've got the gospel. I know that unknown God He's the one true God, and you can know Him too and be part of His family. Jesus Christ has come. That's how He does it. He takes something they already embrace, and then He just helps them see that it points to the gospel. He does it in the synagogues. He always starts in the synagogues, and He meets with the Jewish people in that area, and He says, "You're waiting for a Messiah. Good news! The Messiah has come." The gospel is the content of His debate with people. I would I would even argue He think. He would believe the gospel is what his opponents need. They think it's all about flexing your power and, and how prominent you are. And he would probably say, they need to see the lowliness of our Savior. That's what he leads up with, right? That I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He's like, you've missed the gospel. You need the gospel. The gospel has to be the content of our arguing. Not only that, we have to have a gospel posture as well, what, What's a gospel posture? A gospel posture is what he says in the beginning. It's what me and my wife are trying to figure out. It's a gentle, it's meek. You lead out with gentleness and meekness. When you find a fight worth fighting, you don't go in guns blazing. As a matter of fact, has anyone ever had their mind changed because they stated their opinion about something and someone blew them up and, you know, I just got in your face and told you what an idiot you were and laid out all the reasons why you don't think right. And then you stopped and went, you know, now that you say that, I can really see your point of view. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's good. Thank you. Thank you for yelling at me. Like, no one, right? No one's ever been changed that way. How do you get changed? How do you have your mind changed? Because you, you may be thinking wrongly about someone, and someone listens to you anyways, and they care, and they, and they consider what you're saying, and then they gently guide you because they love you to a place of understanding something different. That's how it happens, and that's what Paul's doing. That's what Paul's doing. You know this if you're parents, right? You love your kids. You want them to obey. You don't bring the hammer the first time they disobey. Maybe you do. Ew, work on that. Um, but, you know, like like I see my, my daughters and it's like, you know, oh, sweetie, I know Sissy wants to watch the real Beauty and the Beast, and, and I know you want to watch the cartoon Beauty and the Beast, but you can't gouge your eyes and pull her to the ground by her hair, you know, you get down on your knees and you talk reasonably with her. And then sometimes, sometimes you have, to, you have to put hard discipline on them. But that's not what you start with. You love them. And so you want to see them obey and you bring gentleness first, right? Gentleness first. And that's what Paul has done with the people in Corinth. He brings gentleness first. That's how it's worked. That's what it works for him. That's how he's trying to get them to change. That's how Christ gets us to change. After all, Paul says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, right? It's the love of the Lord that leads us to repentance. No one would become a Christian if Jesus shows up like he does in Revelation with like white hair and lightning bolts and blood-dipped robe and is like, change! We would all just be like, no, we run, you know? It's gentle, meek, loving Christ that actually makes us want to follow him and be with him. I'm a confrontational person, so I understand if you are too. And, and I, I, at this point in my studies, was like, but what about when Jesus goes to Jerusalem and starts turning over tables? And I wanted to go there so badly. But you know, um, God has kind of showed me, you know Jesus sits outside of Jerusalem and he weeps over that city before he goes in and turns over tables? You know, he, he weeps and says, Jerusalem, I long to gather you in like a mother hen gathers in chicks, and then he goes in and turns over the tables. He loves those people even though he's angry. His heart is compassionate towards them. still. Is that you, is that you, is that your posture? Are you gentle, are you meek as you address people that you disagree with? This past year has been so combative. This past year has been uh, so easy to get caught up in anger and frustration and arguments. I, I know you've seen it. I've seen it too. And I know you've seen the church engage in it too. And to be honest, I found my own heart grumbling and even quarreling sometimes with others. You know what hope I have for somebody like me and you? If you watch our Lord when he's on earth, You watch him deal with his key guys, the disciples. You could not put together more opposite guys in some respects. I mean, do you know Simon the Zealot? He is a far conservative religious zealot who wants to see the oppressive power of Rome go away forever. He wants to burn them with the fire of a thousand suns. He cannot stand Rome, right? That's Simon. And then on the other hand, you got Matthew, the tax collector who has abandoned his people, sold them out, and now works for Rome to oppress the Jewish people to get rich. Put them together as bunkmates when the Jesus show hits the road. Let's see how that goes. You think they fought maybe once or twice? I mean, they fought the whole time, I'm sure, right? You have other instances. James and John come up to Jesus. I want to sit on your right. I want to sit on your left. And what happens is the disciples get indignant, They're angry. We have fighting, bickering disciples. And Jesus, how does he treat them? Does he get rid of them and start over? No. He loves them. He's patient with them. He teaches them. He calls them to repent. He sends them out. He brings them back. He loves them some more. He teaches them. He calls them to repent again. And on and on it goes. And he takes that bickering bunch of knuckleheads and he turns the world upside down. That's the hope I have. Why did he stick with guys like that? Because he loved them. Why did he, was he able to change them? He was able to change them through his love for them. And he loves you and I just like he loved them. You know, the last night he spent before he was betrayed, he spent with his disciples. He taught them a lot of things, but something pretty neat happened at the end. He prayed this big prayer we see in John 17. He prays for himself Then he prays for the disciples. And then he prays for all of those who would come to know his name based on the testimony of the disciples. That's you and me. That's every Christian that wasn't in that room that night. And he prays for them. And you know what he asked for? You know what he asked God for? That they would be one as I and the Father are one. that they would share the same intimacy with one another that me and the Father share, that they would share the same mission with one another that me and the Father share. That's what he asked God for. And then the next day, Jesus our Lord, he went and found a hill worth dying on and he did it for you and for me. That's our love of our Savior, He's committed to us to the end. He's going to see to it that we change. He puts a spirit of meekness and gentleness that cares about the right things inside of us. And now it's our job to lean into what the spirit does inside of us. Do you need to repent of a petty fight that you've had with a believer? Go repent. And do you need to lock arms and fight about the right things with one another? Yes, let's do that. Let's do that together. And if we did, it would be like us locking arms and in unison saying amen to the prayer he prayed over us so long ago. It would shine like light in the darkness and our Savior would smile. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us for the petty fights we've had. Lord Jesus, make us one as you and the Father are one. Would you change our hearts, continue to convince us of your love that we might become more like you, more likely to fight over those things that matter with one another than against one another. Would you bring us together, I pray in Christ's name, amen.